Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I think as you guys know and listeners probably know, uh, I am a big fan of D.C. restaurants, which have been struggling a lot like all restaurants have. And if we have to go back to phase one and the restaurants close because the White House has been the largest super spreader event in the district, I'm going to be real pissed. Yeah, especially given that we were on such a good trajectory until the president got COVID. Like, I was looking forward to maybe even having a beer at a bar or seeing friends, but no. But wait a minute, the way you stated that, concern, Shane, it implies that if we have to go back to phase one because of something else other than the president and the White House, you'll be okay with it. So I want to ask, like, what should be the biggest super spreader event in the district? Like if we have candidates for it? Well, yeah. Like, could we have like your birthday? Like, could that oh, be I see. Like, like, what nice things could we have instead of sure, my birthday? Exactly. We could have a, we could have a big in- inside party for my birthday. That would be worth it. Yeah, instead <laughs> in of the nomination event for a potential Supreme Court justice who's going to make me miserable, Amy COVID Barrett. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> like, how about the Montgomery County Fair? That would be worth it. Oh, a Indoor. nice fair. A nice, yeah. a nice petting zoo. Did you guys know that the uh, White House has more cases of COVID than the entire island of Taiwan? Hmm. That does not make me feel better. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Don't Let It Dominate You edition. I am Shane Harris. Ooh, I'm dropping pens all over the place. I've been dominated by all the cords coming out of my computer right now. It's like a hazard zone over here. You know, if it's not one thing that dominates you, it's going to be another. Really, it, it is. I just, <laughs> I'm trying not to feel dominated by coronavirus uh, uh, or the president these days. Uh, I am here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and our special guest today, Quinta Jurassic. Hi, guys. Hey, Hello. Shane. Yo. Yay, Quinta. Yay, Quinta. Quinta, are you feeling domineering or dominated today? You know, it's a virus. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not, there's no dominating, there's no domineering. It's just like a couple of strands of RNA. Yep, yep. yep. That's the right answer. You know, don't be afraid of the coronavirus. Oh, don't, don't be afraid of this inanimate object. Don't be afraid of it. It's just going to kill you. <laughs> I suppose it is animate. I don't know. Uh, but that was the president's uh, very sound medical advice uh, before he uh, stood before uh, the helicopter and was seen, uh, I think, gasping for air after it dropped him off after his hospital stay. Don't let it dominate you. Power of positive thinking. We're going to talk about all of that today on the podcast. And dear God, what a week. Um, President Trump, of course, tests positive for the coronavirus and the White House becomes a hot zone. Justice Department officials were, quote, a driving force behind an immigration policy that separated families at the border with Mexico, according to a new report. And two ISIS militants are charged in the murder of American hostages. Let's start with the big news. Obviously, the president and his positive. Uh, test for coronavirus. Uh, I think most people are probably up to speed on this one, so I won't do too much of a roundup. But obviously, we found out last Friday morning, I think technically around 1 a.m., that the president and the first lady had tested positive. There are still a ton of questions left to be answered about exactly when he tested positive. Ben, let me start with you on this. You and Quinta actually have a good piece up right now on Lawfare that's making the argument that tonight's vice presidential debate should be canceled because Mike Pence 
ought to be in quarantine, considering that by the last count, there are 23 White House staffers who have now tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, As I said, we don't know exactly when or how the president became infected. It seems almost certain now that he traveled while he was infected, whether he was contagious not sure yet. Um, He probably started experiencing symptoms based on our reporting when he came back from a trip to New Jersey, uh, where he was around, I think, several hundred people, it's been reported. Uh, He tests positive. He goes to the hospital. He has since left, but of course, is still likely at risk of becoming more ill, given how the virus often runs its course. Uh, He is an obese senior citizen, which puts him in a high risk group. He has been pumped full of experimental drugs as well as steroids that can cause manic behavior. Uh, He was on a Twitter rampage last night, even by his own standards. And we still don't know his full medical condition. We don't know how chest x-rays turned out, what signs of lung damage they may have shown. And as far as we know, and this is germane to the question we want to talk about first, is that at no time was there any consideration that the president would relinquish any of his authorities to the vice president, even temporarily until he was fully over the virus. And my first question to you is, was that a mistake? Well, of course it was. I mean, just to ask that question is to answer it. It would be, to be fair, hard to tell Trump in a manic episode on Twitter from Trump normally on Twitter. Uh, that said, you know, normally when we when we hear that somebody is hospitalized with COVID or in bad enough shape to be on the drug cocktails that the president has been on, we don't really think of that as consistent with the day-to-day functions of the presidency, which is a grueling job. And we do think of the day-to-day functions of the presidency as requiring particularly good judgment, if not intelligence or articulateness or any other things that we associate, you know, might attach positive virtues to. We certainly think it requires judgment. So now you're talking about somebody whose capacity is certainly stressed, who does not exhibit good judgment under the best of circumstances, but is on a set of drugs that that are known enough to impair judgment that those are known side effects and who is behaving in a erratic manner even for him. So obviously under those circumstances, there should at least be consideration of transfer of day-to-day authority or transfer of some authorities or even transfer of all authorities. And the fact that they don't even appear to have been considering the circumstances under which you would do that is a uh, damaging thing and and a scary thing. Now, the saving grace is that Trump doesn't exercise a lot of the powers of the presidency anyway. He kind of runs the presidency as a on kind of autopilot. Uh, except for the Twitter functions, which, of course, the Article 2 Twitter function, which is in a you know unwritten codicil of Article <laughs> 2, is, of course, the most important function of the presidency, along with the power randomly to fire people. And, and of course, the Fox News consultation clause, you know, is an important function. Very as well. underappreciated the, clause. Yeah, these are very, uh, these are actually the core functions of the presidency. And Trump does seem to be managing them reasonably as uh, not quite as normal. But look, so much of the day-to-day operations of the presidency are delegated, you know, de facto, if not de jure, that, you know, the impact might be relatively little, except that, of course, so many other people are sick or are in danger of being sick. And so I do think you have more chaos than usual. Uh, it may be mitigated by the degree to which Trump is, you know, not a manager anyway. Tammy. Yeah, I I feel like there are two distinct issues that inform the question of whether a president should transfer his authorities to his his or her vice president in these kinds of circumstances. And they're very, very different issues. And I think that they they get conflated in a lot of this discussion. 
And as Ben has noted, it's very hard to separate an evaluation of these issues from an evaluation of this particularly bizarre, erratic personality who is our current president. But the two issues are, is the president mentally and physically capable of discharging his or her duties? That's one question. And the other question is, how do we ensure continuity of government? Because that is a core national security function. Like, you know, if the North Koreans set off a nuclear weapon or if a category four hurricane hits the Gulf of Mexico and the president is incapacitated, you have to know who's in charge, who can sign emergency declarations, who can order the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, et cetera. So those are two very different things. A lot of people are focused on the first, you know, well, he's got a fever, you know, he's on this steroid, which makes him behave weirdly. And so he shouldn't have the authority to launch a nuclear strike, for example. And like, on the one hand, I'm sympathetic, and it is certainly within the purview of a president and their, his or her advisors to say, you know, maybe it's a good idea to transfer authorities temporarily. But the fact of the matter is that previous presidents in far worse circumstances, like, did not transfer authorities. I was just this morning reading Susan Glasser and Peter Baker's new biography of James Baker, who was Reagan's chief of staff and the most powerful person other than Ronald Reagan in the Reagan White House. And I was reading this section about when Reagan was shot by John Hinckley. Baker went to the hospital within a half an hour, saw him like bleeding out in the ER. They hadn't even found the bullet wound. And then they found it. They took him into surgery. He's in surgery for two hours. And Baker thinks about and decides against invoking the 25th Amendment and having the cabinet transfer authority to the vice president, even though his opinion is that the president might be about to die, right? The president is literally unconscious in surgery. Now, since then, we've had presidents voluntarily sign over authorities temporarily when they go under anesthesia for, you know, procedures and things like that. But, you know, can you imagine any one of Trump's senior staffers going to him and saying, sir, we know you have COVID. We think it's a good idea for you to temporarily sign over your powers. Like, how is that going to go? Okay. (laughs) So I don't think it was ever in the cards for there to be a recognition that he might not be fully copacetic and therefore unable to exercise his duties. Reagan also, let's remember, had early stage Alzheimer's by the end of his presidency. No one questioned his authority. The elected president is the elected president. The continuity of government issue, to me, is more significant. And here's where we get to all the things we don't know about Trump's illness. We don't know if he was ever unconscious. We don't know you know, if he ever was literally out of his mind on drugs or because he couldn't breathe or whatever. We don't know what may be happening to him right now. We don't know if it's him that's tweeting these crazy tweets. And so if there were a national crisis that arose unpredictably, we would lack continuity of government because the one thing we do know is that the president's staff do not serve the presidency and they do not serve the government. They serve Donald Trump. That is what worries me. And I should just add before we go to Ben, we don't know those things in large part because the president is not authorizing uh, his personal physician, Dr. Happy Talk, to tell us what's actually going on. Ben. Yeah. So I I think the comparison to the Reagan shooting is a erroneous one, honestly. So when the president is shot in surgery for a couple of hours, Baker made a mistake in that situation. But Reagan was conscious again pretty quickly and was in a position to make his own decision as to whether to transfer authority. Now, Baker made the wrong call. And the result was, of course, for those of us who were old enough to remember it, Al Haig, who was then, I believe, Secretary of State, egomaniacally saying, I'm in control here in this uh, White House setting that was it was completely extra constitutional and it was quite dangerous. So I don't mean to let Baker off the hook, 
But it's a totally different situation. A few hours under general anesthesia uh, is a totally different situation from what may be weeks and weeks of, of significant impairment. That much more closely, in my view, resembles Woodrow Wilson having the 1918 flu. Uh, Woodrow Wilson later having, uh, this would be even more severe, a stroke and effectively turning over power to his wife. We don't know who's in control right now, and that's almost certainly because nobody is. And that's a more dangerous thing than a few hours of chaos in the immediate aftermath of a shooting. Quinta, tell us what you think. Yeah, I think that there's another way that's sort of so obvious that it seems silly to mention it in which this is different than uh, the Hinckley shooting, which is, as I saw someone comment on Twitter the other day, bullets are not contagious, (laughs) right? Um, What's been really striking to me here is not just the fact that the president is ill with a potentially deadly virus and his administration has been very unforthcoming with information about how he's doing and doesn't seem to transfer power. It's also the case that Trump has been so reckless with his own health and now that he's sick with the health of the people around him that I think that's also a serious problem. It obviously poses a different set of issues than this question of who is literally in control of the powers of the presidency at at any given moment. But I mean, the other day, the Joint Chiefs had to self-isolate because someone had... The Coast Guard deputy. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So, and I think that that's a good demonstration of how widely this kind of thing can spread. I mean, it's it's in terms of other government leaders. Thankfully, uh, the vice president hasn't been sick, but if he were to come down sick, there's a whole can of worms that happens then. Everyone in the residence, I, I'm sort of thinking here not only, obviously, of the staff who provide services in the residence, and many of whom are Uh, demographically in risk groups, but also in terms of, you know, thinking about the national security implications, the staffers who make things run every day on the National Security Council, right? That creating this environment where the White House is essentially through the doors wide open to the virus and now where the president is back in uh, at least the East Wing, I think just creates a really potentially dangerous and explosive situation in a way that is is deeply concerning. I mean, maybe we'll be lucky and it will turn out that, you know, there aren't a lot more positives coming out of this wave of infections. But it does worry me, not only what's going to happen with leaders like Pence, but what's going to happen to the staff who make things run. Yeah, I think that's a great point just to emphasize too, is, I mean, it, it, when, when, when Woodrow Wilson had the flu, I mean, he wasn't uh, demanding to come back to the residence or to go to the Oval Office, as we understand uh, that President Trump was yesterday. You know, he wasn't, you know, hermetically sealed into a car with Secret Service officers. You know, he wasn't spreading a deadly pathogen around to his staff who now have to decide, you know, whether it's worth the risk to their life and their health just to come back to work. And I guess, you know, this raises just another point. We don't have time to go into all of it. But, you know, what do you do when the president is not just at risk himself from an illness, but is actively a threat to the people around him and doesn't seem to be taking that seriously at all? And it's just I think it's a bit of a measure of how unseriously uh, they've been taking this, that even the possibility that, you know, he could possibly die from this and the vice president too, which by the way, brings up the forwards acting president, Nancy Pelosi, that apparently doesn't scare the president either, that they could be this cavalier about it. And it just strikes me that, you know, the president is, believes in the power of positive thinking and is just, just genuinely not giving any concern to the enormous disruption that he's causing to the basic day-to-day functions of government, even though, as Ben said, many of these day-to-day responsibilities of his are delegated to other people. Uh, Quinta, last quick point from you. Yeah, the last point I want to make is, I think that the other thing that's been really striking here is how other people have gone along with it, right? I think the to go back to Pence, my and Ben's point was that it makes absolutely no sense for Pence to be in person at this debate, because if he gets sick, there could really be a constitutional crisis. And yet, you know, his staff seems to be going along with it, presumably because, you know, they want to make Trump happy. So it's not just Trump endangering people himself, it's people 
watching Trump endanger everyone around them and saying, yes, let's do more of that. Well, speaking of, yes, let's do more of that as a policy. (laughs) (laughs) the segues are dark today people it's a dark (laughs) episode people it is a sign of the times y'all uh new york times is out uh with a really great report a preview uh, if you will of a big inspector general investigation at the justice department into the uh president's zero tolerance policy when it came to um the practice of separating uh, or of deterring uh, uh, immigration across the border uh, by separating adults from the children that they were traveling with. And we've talked a lot about that on the podcast. Ultimately, this Inspector General report found that top Justice Department officials were, in fact, a driving force behind this policy. And those officials include the Attorney General at the time, Jeff Sessions, and his deputy, Rod Rosenstein. Quinn, I want to come to you first on this. I was struck at the time that we were debating this policy and it was in the news by just the sheer amount of buck passing that was going on. And I think it was lost on nobody that Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen at the time seemed to kind of be, I think now it becomes maybe a little more clear, maybe a fall guy, maybe that's too strong of a word, but there was this sense, I think, that it was kind of all coming down on her when in fact what we now know is that the buck really stops or or maybe we should say it began with DOJ, where these senior officials were knowingly pushing a policy because it would result in children being separated from their families. So help us understand, just as an initial matter, is this normal for DOJ officials to be involved in making policy decisions like that when they are when they are so obviously consequential? Well, Ben, Ben may be better positioned to speak to the, you know, what's normal for DOJ, but I'm I'm happy to sort of speak to this particular example. So the reason that DOJ was involved here, just to remind people, is that the zero tolerance child separations policy functionally worked by prosecuting everyone who had illegally crossed the border, um, which had the effect of separating parents from children as those parents were put into the criminal justice system. And so that's sort of where where the Justice Department got involved. I, I will say reading the New York Times report, I was also struck by even within the Times' reporting, how you can see the sort of language of buck passing to, I'm not sure what, what better word there is. Uh, the, the instance that really struck me is a note that the Times has that Rod Rosenstein, who was, of course, the deputy attorney general at the time and was overseeing the Mueller investigation, told the inspector general that he didn't see it as a DOJ equity to care for the children who were being separated. Uh, And that is obviously extremely telling. um, And also, I thought, spoke to, you know, part of why this became such a problem, because if you look at the sort of administrative fallout of the whole situation, a lot of what happens is that these kids get passed around between Health and Human Services and the Department of Homeland Security, and there's just a lack of a sort of administrative apparatus to carry out this policy, which in itself was absolutely monstrous. One one more thing before we, we move on, I, I think it is also worth saying, again, speaking of buck passing, that the the idea of child separations has really seared itself into people's minds as a sort of example of the monstrousness of the Trump administration, and rightly so. Something that's talked about a lot less is the fact that this isn't currently happening. And the reason it's not currently happening is because the administration is possibly illegally turning away these parents and children at the border under the Remain in Mexico program, where they're waiting in what are essentially poorly equipped refugee camps in great danger of COVID and great danger of kidnapping. And so there's a kind of out of sight, out of mind function, I think. I don't think that means that we shouldn't pay attention to this story about the Justice Department's role, because obviously we should. But since we're talking about, you know, people trying to pass the hot potato along, I do think that that's worth pointing out. Uh, Tammy. Yeah, I uh, thanks for that additional bit, Quinta. I think it's important. I also think it's important to remember that even if additional families are not being separated as we speak, there are still children in U.S. government custody, and there are children who have been placed with foster families and lost to their own families. 
And there were several children that died in U.S. government custody. So, you know, this is an ongoing problem. It's just not a problem that's continuing to grow. And for that, we should be grateful. It's interesting to me, you know, it's interesting to read the buck passing as Quinta described it. It's also interesting to me that at this point in the life of the Trump administration, you still have new stories coming out with new behind the scenes takes on things that happened a while ago. And there's no doubt that some of this is people who are now out of government or about to get out of government or thinking about getting and trying to sort of resuscitate their reputations. You know, this this particular story in the New York Times is clearly, you know, a little bit of Kristen Nielsen's people or people who care about Kristen Nielsen or Nielsen herself trying to make it clear that she was the last holdout to this horrible policy and that DHS, you know, wasn't pushing this. It was forced on them and they objected because it had negative implications for other important national security priorities that they really, really were trying to to be good about, you know, that this is the Justice Department's fault. So it's, you know, there there is source buck passing going on here. Um, and I think it's important to track that because we're going to have more and more of it, especially if the president does not win re-election, then there's going to be a veritable flood of why this was everyone else's fault but mine, why I was only doing what I was told or what I was forced to do or what I was blackmailed into. And we're going to have an incredibly difficult task parsing all of these accounts in the coming months. And so to me, like this story is a leading indicator of what's to come. And it also enforces, I think, the imperative of the public and the Congress. And if there is a new administration, you know, a new administration all thinking now about how to handle this. You know, how do we want to come up with authoritative public understandings of these abuses, and how do we want to create accountability? I've mentioned this before with respect to, you know, ethical lapses at the State Department and stuff like that. But, you know, to me, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And I really, I worry that if we don't handle it well, we're going to end up further embedding cynicism in the public about their government and we're going to be reinforcing their mistrust in public institutions. Ben. So I want to go back to the original question you posed, Quinto, which is, is it normal for the Justice Department to be playing what the IG has apparently called a driving role in immigration policy? Because I think it actually speaks to a weird almost lacuna that has developed uh, quite apart from the personalities in question here uh, in authority over the border. So normally you would say that the answer to that question is no. Back at the time that the INS was moved out of the Justice Department, divided between CBP and uh, the Border Patrol and ICE, and moved into DHS, uh, and only the adjudication functions of the immigration system were left in the Justice Department, you would have thought that the consequence of that would be that the Secretary of Homeland Security would be the person in the driver's seat on border policy. She is, after all, in this situation, the one who controls the troops, right? She's the one who uh, can uh, set the regulations, and so then you ask the question, well, how is it that the Justice Department came to be in the driver's seat here? And the answer to that lies in something that Quinta mentioned, uh, which is that they have the authority to decide whom to prosecute. And normally we don't prosecute illegal border crossings as criminal matters. We treat them as you know, civil infractions and deal with them through the immigration court system. And the penalty for having crossed the border illegally is that you get deported. However, if the Justice Department declares a zero tolerance policy and treats these as a criminal matter on a systematic basis, 
Well, then all of a sudden you're throwing a whole bunch of people into the criminal justice system, which routinely involves separating them from their kids. And so you end up in a situation in which by emphasizing the criminal law over the normal civil process by which we process deportations, you end up with a situation in which the Justice Department is, as the IG has reported, controlling a whole swath of immigration policy that we thought we had removed from the Justice Department and given to a different agency. And so I actually think uh, as a policy matter, leave aside the appalling conclusions that one might reasonably draw about Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein, although at least I would add in Jeff Sessions' case, it is who he's always been as a as a political animal. I mean, you know, the the southern border is is the thing that drew Jeff Sessions to Donald Trump in the first place. So in Sessions' case, it's at least not surprising. But the policy conclusions that you might draw from this is that decriminalizing undocumented entry may be a good idea because it may deprive, you know, or at least without some aggravating factor, uh, it may deprive the Justice Department of the lever to basically lift this stuff out of DHS and, and dump it into the criminal justice system. Ben, just as a last closing matter on this, just a quick question. Is it, this inspector general's report is not expected to come until after the election. Practically speaking, are there any sanctions or penalties that can be issued at this point, considering so many of these people are no longer in government, the people who, who were instrumental in, in executing the policy? Not really. So obviously, I have not read the report, only the New York Times' account of its leaked uh, version of the report. Normally, when you know when the IG reports on former officials, it really lacks jurisdiction to do anything other than report on them to the extent that they engaged in misconduct as lawyers. It can be referred to OPR or to ultimately to bar authorities in whatever states they're barred. But there's no question of that here. Uh, this is really. Uh, an issue more of embarrassment for them and criticism of them of the type that uh, I would think uh, might well and certainly should follow them in their future careers. Yeah, I guess, Shane, the one thing I would add to that is that they didn't necessarily break any rules. This was within their discretion. It's within the president's discretion to say, I want you to prosecute all these people. Um, and, you know, I want to have a zero tolerance policy. He gets to do that, which is precisely why it's so important for there to be some way for figures of authority after this is over to say this was wrong. We as a government, we as a country should not have done this. And that's the accountability is you know, the the taking ownership and the making clear that the people who participated in this should have known not to do so. And I think that that can only come from a commission of some kind or from congressional oversight or maybe from a statement of a future administration. But it's, you know, it's a little bit like Japanese internment. It was it was legal at the time, but damn, was it wrong. By the way, there's a much more recent and more on-point example than Japanese internment, which is the roundup of the immigration roundup after 9-11 of Arab and Muslim, almost all men, who were touched by the 9-11 invest investigation. At the time of the 9-11 investigation, basically, the FBI goes out around the country and interviews, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And if any of them had immigration issues, they just as a matter of routine referred them to what was then the INS, which caused something like 5,000 people to be put in immigration detention and into deportation proceedings. And over a number of years later, the IG investigated this and particularly investigated detentions under this program in the Metropolitan Detention Facility in New York and criticized it uh, very strongly, 
but noted, you know, it was basically all lawful, all within discretion, and yet uh, wrong. And this is, uh, you know, probably an example of that as well. Well, there is other news coming out of the Justice Department today uh, of justice being served years after the fact. There are two uh, former British citizens uh, that are going to be now that are now accused of participating in the murder of Americans held hostage by ISIS. These are two former ISIS members themselves, and they are being charged with conspiracy, commit hostage taking, resulting in death as well as related counts in the deaths of James Foley, Kayla Mueller, Stephen Sotloff, and Peter Kasich, who uh, listeners will remember uh, were killed or died in ISIS custody, some of them brutally murdered on video. Tammy, this case has involved a lot of legal and diplomatic wrangling. These two individuals were actually being held in U.S. custody in Iraq for a period of time and then were stripped of their British citizenship. So traditionally, many countries that don't practice capital punishment like the U.K., won't even extradite people to the U.S. if they're going to face the death penalty. And it seems like they won't here. But this took a lot of maneuvering, it seems, to get these two individuals now into an American court where they will face justice. So do you think this is something of of a diplomatic or a legal victory for the Trump administration? I do think it's an accomplishment, although it's an accomplishment that was made possible by the willingness of the Trump administration to waive something that typically U.S. administrations don't like to do. They don't like to acquiesce in other countries trying to tell them not to go for the death penalty, especially when it comes to terrorists that they want to bring back to the United States and try. So it is notable that the administration was willing to drop its authority to pursue the death penalty. And it's notable also that this is, you know, one of the very few issues on which the Trump administration has been fairly consistent and persistent is hostage cases. Now, these hostages were all killed by ISIS, you know, and so it wasn't, there was never a possibility of getting them back. This is rather a case of getting justice for what happened to them. But all of their families have been in regular dialogue with the Trump administration. And these two perpetrators, uh, you know, these former ISIS fighters have been in American custody for a while. And so it's been awkward. Like they were captured by our Syrian Kurdish partners, along with a whole lot of other ISIS guys. They were held by those Kurdish partners. So the U.S. didn't have custody, although we did have a relationship with the people who had custody. And then when the Turks invaded northern Syria and the Kurds' hold over all these people was threatened, the U.S. took these two guys and brought them to a military base in Iraq. And that's where we've been holding them ever since. So we've been, the United States government has been in a position where it doesn't really have strong legal authority to hold them But the U.S. justice system is claiming extraterritorial jurisdiction and wants to try them. And they're in American custody. So somehow this had to get worked out with the Brits because these are British citizens. And ultimately, it was Attorney General Barr being willing to drop the death penalty that let the Brits move forward. And it turns out that the issue is not simply that the Brits are willing to see their citizens transferred for trial in the United States, but also that the UK government has information that the Justice Department is going to be, believes will be important to successful prosecution, specifically information about the radicalization of these guys when they were younger in the UK, before they went off to fight in Syria, that will help American prosecutors make the case that these are kind of hard-bitten, ideologically committed fighters, and they weren't just sort of innocently caught up in a, in a moment or bamboozled or something like that. And so it's not just that you know they dropped objections to extradition, it's that they're actually going to help the, the U.S. make its case. All in all, I think that this is one of those situations that brings closure to the families. I mean, assuming that the case moves forward, could bring closure to these grieving families. 
it is the message that all administrations want to send, which is that if you're a terrorist and you kill Americans, we will follow you to the ends of the earth. And so, yeah, I do give the Trump administration credit for for getting this trial to happen, getting these indictments finally done. Ben, I'm curious, or maybe Quinta, either one of you, you know, Tammy mentioned that, you know, the, I think, relative success that this administration has had with getting Americans back, uh, recovering hostages. There, Notably, there are some who do remain uh, still not with their loved ones. Austin Tice, you know, comes to mind. First and foremost, there are others as well. The, the Namazis in Iran. Yes. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and there are still efforts, including private efforts that are going on behind the scenes to try and remedy that situation. But I mean, it does seem like this is one of the you know, a few bright spots maybe in the Trump administration's foreign policy is its, you know, ability to to get these individuals home. And I think Robert O'Brien, now the national security advisor, played a big role in that. So, you know, I'm curious if you guys have thoughts on that and if there's something that, you know, are there lessons being learned here that can be replicated, you know, in future administrations? Because, you know, regardless of who is sitting in the White House, I mean, we we all want Americans, you know, not to be taken hostage, and then for the government, of course, to do everything that it can to get them home if they are. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say, I think, you know, uh, Shane and Tammy, you're, you're both right that this is an achievement on the administration's part. The irony is that, you know, under a quote unquote normal administration, we might expect to see, say, the president, like, make a statement about it. Um, You know, have some kind of message to the families publicly, something like that. As far as I can tell, the president hasn't spoken about it. He did tweet about the DOJ press conference, but he indicated that or hinted that it would be something to do with Obamagate. Um, and <laughs> maybe that, nobody gave him the memo. <laughs> yeah, he just he he read he didn't read the memo, so he didn't know what it was about. By exactly. the way, he tweeted yesterday 49 times about Obamagate or some variation of it. Sorry, Quinn, yeah. go ahead. So, no, 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 not at all. But I mean, I think that in itself is a, a really good demonstration of where this administration is, right? Like the, the things that it does well are no thanks to the president who doesn't seem to even potentially be aware of them and is meanwhile sort of mired in relitigating something that happened four years ago and that pretty much everyone else has moved on from. Ben, do you have thoughts? So I want to go back to the Beatles case because it seems to me that uh, while I agree with you on the hostage uh, return issue, I'm not sure that this is an example of a success that couldn't have been had some time ago. Uh, This is an administration that does not want to give up on the death penalty, uh, whatever it thinks about DOJ's equities in child separation it really believes that DOJ has a strong equity in executing people. And, you know, there are instances, and this was long obviously one of them, in which you have a choice between international law enforcement cooperation, which is essential to this case, and the death penalty, in which most other countries that we do business with don't believe you know, so I, I do give the administration credit for uh, eventually being able to make this case and get control of the of the individuals in question. But I also wonder whether it couldn't have happened months and months and months ago if the administration weren't quite as committed to putting people to death. That's a really good point, Ben, actually. And I think that part of what pushed this toward resolution was not any insistence on the part of the UK, but actually Secretary of Defense Mike Esper, because it was his folks that had custody over these two in Iraq. As we know, over the last months, the the very American military presence in Iraq has come under question. And so Esper was pushing over the course of the summer that one way or another, the Justice Department had to resolve this so that the U.S., military in Iraq didn't have to maintain custody of these two guys. But what does resolve this mean? It means... Either drop the death penalty and get the UK, therefore, to drop its objections, or decide that we're not going to prosecute them if we can't prosecute for the death penalty. But there wasn't, you know, there wasn't any other way that they were going to get tried. And Esper was uncomfortable keeping them in American military custody in Iraq 
on a base, you know, that's not designed as a prison. And the only other alternative, I guess, might have been to send them to Guantanamo, but that's... That's a non-alternative. Right, exactly. But okay, but but this is the point. Now imagine that the Justice Department is not in the hands of Bill Barr, who has been on, pardon me, a killing spree for the last few, several months uh, and is really enthusiastic about reviving the federal death penalty. How much faster does this get resolved? Oh, yeah. No, I think it would have been done in the spring as soon as the U.S. had control over these guys. And so that's really my point, that it's, you know, yes, they get credit for getting it done, but the impediment to getting it done was them. So often seems to be the case around here, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. <clears throat> All right, let's move on to uh, object lessons. Uh, I think, ben, and ben, me and you have objects today. I do too. Oh, you do too? Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so my object is about the coronavirus not as it affects our president or even anyone else in the United States, but as it affects the man that our president may be thinking about more than any other man who is not himself. Yes, I'm talking about Vladimir Putin. There is a great New York Times story uh, that was published this past week about the extraordinary lengths to which Vladimir Putin has gone to avoid catching the coronavirus. This even as uh, his countrymen have record new case totals. But he is apparently living in his country house, conducting almost all his meetings over video links. And if you want to see him in person, or more likely if he wants to see you in person, you must first, A, quarantine for 14 days, and B, you walk through a plastic tunnel <laughs> into his house and while you're walking through the plastic tunnel, it sprays you with disinfectant. This, this is what Russian senior officials are going through to see their president. So, you know, as crazy as it is here, and as much as we think Trump is irresponsible, there is the opposite end of the spectrum. And maybe we should be glad we're not there either. By the way, one of my favorite parts of this story was, you know, Russia, of course, having touted that it invented the world's first vaccine for COVID-19. And I think at one point, didn't Putin say his daughter had taken it? Yeah. Did she walk through the plastic tunnel? Right, huh? right, huh? right. Yeah, they're, called, they're quoting a Kremlin spokesperson saying, he hinted this week that the president would only resume foreign travel after he gets a COVID-19 vaccine. But he advised that Mr. Putin was not ready to get the shot yet, despite all the media bombast about Russia's world-leading achievement in developing it. Quote, it's natural that when it comes to the head of state, special precautionary measures are in effect. Right, like not taking your fake fucking vaccine. <laughs> well, and making your daughter essentially your food taster. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I will say my my impression from talking to friends who are in Russia is that uh, people are not taking the vaccine very seriously there, and I, <laughs> no I doubt this will help. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, uh, I will go next. Um, I have another TV show recommendation for folks this week. Uh, people seem to like my recommendations, and I hear from you. I about liked your recommendation of the Bureau. Oh, yeah. are you on the Bureau now? Yeah, we uh, we watched the first episode Steve. of the Bureau, and I loved it. Trebian, as they say. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's so what they I say. just <laughs> that's exactly that's how they say it in Paris. Um, <laughs> there's a new show. It's actually just finished up, but I'm going to go ahead and recommend it anyway. We kind of breeze through it. Uh, Raised by Wolves, uh, which is now I don't know if this is on HBO or HBO Max. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's an HBO product. This is this Ridley Scott science fiction show that is broadly speaking about a, a couple of androids who were blasted off of earth to go raise humans on another planet after humanity is basically wiped out in this big religious war although not all the humans there's some humans that are left i'm not going to get into all of it but germane to things that we talk a lot about on the show with regards to robotics you know, autonomous weapon systems, which definitely the main character in this show is one, not giving away too much. Um, it's super interesting and actually kind of posits a lot of these kind of weird dilemmas uh, about 
technology and violence that we've talked a lot about on the podcast uh, and that Ben and others have written about. Uh, it's uh, also just like super cool. And it's Ridley Scott and all of his just weird alien mythologies. And like, maybe this will actually be wrapped up into the alien universe i'm not sure but uh are the sets beautiful they're actually quite beautiful and stark like this the the planet that they're on is extremely bleak but also it looks i mean it looks prehistoric actually which because i think one of the things that defines ridley scott from blade runner to alien is these just gorgeously designed sets that are you know, whole worlds in themselves. Yeah, that's definitely uh, a part of this. And, um, and uh, yeah, so uh, check it out. And his son is involved in the project too. So it looks like it's kind of a family affair. Ben, what's your object? I have two objects. Oh, okay. One is that returning to the original understanding of rational security, I had scotch today <laughs> while recording <laughs> rational security, which I Stop have not done. <laughs> I have not done since we went into lockdown. So my my object lesson is a bottle of Bunahaben, which I just uh, drank a little bit of. My real object lesson, however, uh, flows from my uh, newfound interest in Corvids. My slogan these days is more Corvids, less COVID. The other day I was at a hardware store and I was uh, just buying some hardware. And all of a sudden, my eyes fell upon a bird feeder. And I bought the bird feeder. It was was a genuine impulse purchase. And I hung it outside the window, right outside the window of my little office space at Shea Wittes. And I filled it with bird seed. And I'm looking at it right now. And it is the most delightful thing in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not crows that it feeds. It's smaller birds, but they found it right away. Uh, they now congregate outside my window. And I see all of these birds that uh, until recently I only heard. So I don't know how it took me until my 51st year to figure out that what I needed outside my window was a bird feeder. But now I uh, have done so. It is literally an object. This is what seven months of COVID isolation have done to Ben. He's drinking yes, the, and talking to birds. And being nice to birds. <laughs> there, there you go. It's also appropriate that I talked about androids for my object because, as we know, birds aren't real. And <laughs> right. birds, androids dream of electric birds. Birds are drones. It's a fact. But we can get to that next week because this week we are all wrapped up. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfarebloggood.com. You can find Rational Security themed bird feeders at Ben's house. You sure can. <laughs> Maybe he'll even share some scotch with you if you ask nicely and stand at a distance. You can follow. Whee! You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us as well on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps others find the show, and we love hearing your comments. We have the best, best listeners on the planet. That is not an overstatement. You guys are great. So thanks very much for that. Our audio engineer this week is Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and his new Peggy Lee cover band, You Give Me Fever. Oh! Solid. Hot. Yeah. Hot, hot, hot. Very good. Sophia Yan, thumbs up on that one. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Quinta Jurassic, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye, everybody. Enjoy the debates.